This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 32, recorded on November 24th, 2020. listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abiy Abdallah. I'm here with Dr. Fawner and Dr. Keller. How are we doing? Probably the best I've been all semester because we get a break coming up, so I can't complain. I have a break tomorrow. Oh, you're off tomorrow? I am. Oh, that's I great. This is, this is the reason I came in today. Oh, wow. Look now, at just you. so everybody at home knows, this took 40 minutes to set up. Yeah. So <laughs> we went through half the podcast by we, just saying this out loud, just that's, to that's test right. this recording equipment. We have changed Fawner's microphone five times now. <laughs> and Dr. Fawner now has half of the podcast memorized. I do. I can actually, I don't need to look at this anymore. But um, he doesn't We still know. need to write down. I'm going to be on you about this. We still need to write down what you clicked there, just so we know for the future. Did you click something, or are you just BSing me? We're going to blame me for this, apparently. No, I'm not, but I we want are. to write this down. I like to... This ha- I swear this happens we will, every, we'll like, make six sure months or down. so. Chris, no, I, yeah, we will, we I like to be okay. on top of yeah. S-H-I-T. So, we we didn't, so, in our practice session, we didn't get far enough in that, that Dr. Fodder knows what we're doing today. Ah, indeed. And Today, we're going to uh, debunk some Thanksgiving myths, some science myths. Yeah. And then I put together a special thing for you guys called uh, Turkey True and False. Oh, that should be fun. Yeah. Yeah, So that's what we're going to do today. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, good. So it is uh, Thanksgiving week. It is. Uh, Probably my favorite American holiday because it has a lot of food. (laughs) <laughs> it does have a lot of food. Although I do like July 4th because you can be outside. With a lot of food. With a lot of food. <laughs> I think I prefer barbecue to turkey. I mean, I like turkey, but I'm more of a fan of the chicken and hamburgers. If I could have hamburgers on Thursday, that'd be great. What's the I best? Hot dogs. Uh, I, I, sausages and hot dogs. Yeah, I, just, I agree I, with you on that. How about a favorite way of cooking a turkey? I still think oven's the best for me. Uh, I don't, I don't want to mess with the deep fryer because I'll Mine. be the guy that explodes it. Have you my had brother-in-law? Uh, I have had it. It's, it's good. Yeah. My it's brother-in-law good. went into deep fry if it wasn't for the whole pandemic thing and the restrictions and all that. He was really looking forward to deep frying and having a big family get together. Mm. But I'm pretty sure the deep fry should kill the coronavirus. You would think. <laughs> we could also inject bleach into the but turkey. That is that. You could. <laughs> it's better than arsenic. That's true. All right. So November uh, 24th, 2020, we've got a birthday. Simon Van Der Meer, not from Cornell this time. <laughs> I made a note. It does say he's from Cornell. I, I know. know I, he's saw not. The, I saw the note on it. Yeah, suspicious trend is developing. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so, born 24th of November 1925, died 4th of March 2011 at age 85. Oh, wow. Dutch engineer and a physicist who, uh, along with Italian physicist Carlo Rubia, discovered the W particle and the Z particle by colliding protons and antiprotons. And then they got a Nobel Prize for physics for that. Uh, These subatomic particles uh, transmit weak nuclear force. 
etc. The uh, discovery supported the unified electroweak uh, theory uh, put forward in the 1970s. And then uh, uh, Simon van der Meer went on to work at CERN in Switzerland. And CERN is that uh, uh, large collider. Correct. Yeah. And uh, improved design of particle accelerators, uh, etc. So on and so forth. Invented a device that would monitor and adjust the particle beam, correcting magnetic fields. So, uh, physicist, uh, Nobel Prize winner, uh, good discoveries. And not. And from not. Cornell. From Cornell. Not from time. Cornell. Good to know. <laughs> so, uh, elephant in the room first. Yes, we must. We One must. more time. Well, <laughs> I highly doubt this is the last time. Probably another year, buddy. <laughs> At least. Remember so, when we first started talking about coronavirus and the excitement, not excitement because it's, a, of course, an unfortunate pandemic, but it was pretty exciting to synthesize all this data and now all these data. But now, uh, I don't know, like you said, not that exciting to give the updates you know, it's, anymore. It's monotonous at times, just like staying at home. Right, just well, it's like not just seeing the stuff on the news nonstop every single day for the I past, think, uh, you know, with, you know, with ten months. Well, it replaces the political season, but true. But but the the birth of an outbreak is kind of. I mean, we've kind of documented as well as a lot we of did. other people. We did, and you know, the science has changed. I remember our first episode, masks were not still a CDC requirement. Now they are. You know, science yeah. changes, right? Well, and that's something that I wanted to shout out, too, is um, I know that uh, some people would maybe look at earlier episodes, compare them to the current episodes and say, well, you said one thing at the beginning or discussed some topic at the beginning. And now some people might say, oh, it's been proven to be false. Like when we said at the start, oh, you don't need to worry about masks. But that's what science does. It's it's ever evolving. It changes right. as you collect more data. Yes. And now data support the fact that better to be safe than sorry, wear a mask. And, and I mean, you know, we didn't that, have enough PPE back then, too. Right. So we had to balance. Yeah. That was part of it. That right. was a very important part. Absolutely. Of it. We had I to mean, balance. The first, the I don't need a mask more than my mother-in-law who's a nurse. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, but, 100%. but a lot of companies stepped up, if you remember that early mm-hmm. on, and changed what they were making. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, science changes, but uh, but you know we did get one thing right. Uh, well, we got many things right, but one of the first things that we did that no one else did was called the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember. Uh, we pri- we called it a pandemic before uh, WHO. I think they were still, uh, That's right. even though it was everywhere, they were still trying to be uh, tiptoe around it. Tiptoe or, around it. Yeah. All right, so where are we told number of cases? Worldwide cases close to 59 million and a half. Oh, so 60 million now. 60 million, mm-hmm. uh, one and a half million deaths. U.S., we're inching to 13 million or so. We are at 12.7. We have 263,000 deaths. Uh, European total cases, uh, 16 million or so with 360,000 deaths. Uh, Pennsylvania... Uh, we went up about 100,000 cases since a month ago when we recorded. So we're about 320,000 cases with close to 10,000 deaths. Erie County, and I found this interesting, since last we recorded, they doubled in cases. So Erie County is at uh, 4,500, but the deaths only went up by a total of uh, 10 or so out of, so 25% or so total new deaths rather than double, right? So I think right. we're doing much better uh, this Sort of. By the way, we're we're almost a year into the pandemic, right? November seventeenth was the first case in China, mm-hmm. right? So we are literally a year into this. Yeah. But I think our uh, medical 
standard operating procedures have improved so much that obviously you don't want to ever get Corona, but now is better than getting it six months ago because we know how to treat it. So we know who needs treated too. That's important. Yeah. Yeah. So has the overall fatality rate also gone down? I think so. Worldwide and countrywide. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think that's a huge step forward and a huge positive, but it also not to go more towards panic and the negative side of things, but it's still incredibly alarming that we're still seeing, you know, a resurgence in the number of cases. I'm glad that we're not seeing as many deaths, but the fact that this thing is, it was inevitable. It was going to be spreading everywhere. It's respiratory. I mean, how do you stop that? You don't, you don't, you can't. But how much of a factor, I mean, how much of a significant factor do you think it is, concerning people who are still unwilling to follow the basic guidelines, you know, the basic state guidelines, county guidelines, so on and so forth. I I think there's pandemic fatigue, to be honest, right? Like Mm -hmm. even in, even with the portion of the population, let's say that does believe in science, right? Which obviously there's a portion that doesn't, but I think it's a small number. Even those that are not willing to take extreme measures still know it exists, still know Mm -hmm. it's bad for the elderly, et cetera, right? So, I don't know. There's pandemic fatigue. Even even I'm getting pandemic fatigue. Like I've I'm getting tired months. of this. You know, yeah, what I'm mean? so tired like, of it. Uh, when you look around and you don't see sick people around you, mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to believe that there are sick people. No, no, it's well, that's the problem with vaccine compliance that we've had with, say, diseases like polio. Fair point. Mm-hmm. I was going to make that analogy as well. Right? People don't want to vaccinate their kids for polio because they're like, oh, well, well that's a no disease polio, we got yeah. rid of. And, and, and mm-hmm. even then, it's not that bad. Well, right. you know, it is or yeah. was. So. Be interesting to see if they're more willing these anti-vaxxers to, to get their children vaccinated. Well, I'd like to see what the overall vaccination rate is over the next few years. I mean, just collecting well, those data of vaccines while we're on it. I mean, that's that's really the update for this. Oh, we've had some this exciting episode. news. Yeah, exciting news. And you know, originally I thought maybe this would be a good time to talk about different types of vaccines because this is novel. Mm-hmm. The vaccines that first came out, at least, are are our RNA vaccines. This is not something we've had before. Uh, it's kind of messing with nature, I think a little bit, but we'll see what happens, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how effective they're going to be, but we've never used this type of formulation of a vaccine in humans. Mm-hmm. There's never been an RNA approved vaccine. That is correct. Yeah. Oh. So how do these vaccines work? So, so the ones that have so far been hyped up in the news, there's Pfizer, Mm-hmm. And there's Moderna, and they're both RNA vaccines, messenger RNA. So effectively, if you know anything about protein production, right, you have DNA, which is a new nucleus that gets copied into a messenger RNA. And then the messenger RNA again gets translated into a protein. And that's how you get proteins in the body, right? So if you want to vaccinate someone against, say, the spike protein of the virus, so then they make antibodies against that spike protein and then they can neutralize the virus, get rid of it. You can inject them with the virus spike, right? Or uh, the alternative method that they're doing here is injecting them with the messenger RNA that has the message for the spike and then it enters your cells and then your own cells make the translate it translate it into the spike mm-hmm. protein and then you have that protein it's a foreign protein you make an immune response against it etc so on and so forth which is different than the astrazeneca vaccine which is using an uh, adenovirus and an adenovirus is a virus that usually infects monkeys 
And well, there's some adenovirus that infect people, but there's the one that Astra, <laughs> the one that AstraZeneca is using is a monkey sure, adenovirus sure. that uh, pretty much has uh, 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 the information it needs to then infect cells and then start producing the spike protein. So the delivery there is the virus rather than yeah. the direct injection of the RNA. So it's a vector-based vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. That's also novel. We've not had a vector-based vaccine. There's been a lot of work with them. I know for a long time they've been trying to take the yellow fever backbone uh, for the vaccine uh -huh. and introducing dengue right. serotypes in there to, right. to make it. I, that, we don't have a dengue vaccine still. So what uh, Dr. Ace talking about here is the spike protein, uh, at least the one for coronavirus, is the viral attachment proteins, what the virus uses to get into cells. And the antibodies that we make against it are, are antibodies. We only make antibodies against proteins unless we trick the immune response. Right. Um, uh, IgA antibodies. So these these should be made and be out in the lungs. So when you actually come into contact and inhale the virus, they should bind to it and stop it from infecting your your lung cells. Right. So that's, you'll, that's you'll the also get point. IgG that circulates in the blood as well. Of course, this, but yeah. that's not the protective isotype. Right. So, right. so. Uh, it, it, it's novel. We've used proteins for a long time as specific vaccines to induce mm -hmm. that immune response. Will this one make a, a more robust immune response? I, I would think so. Is it, I was we'll going to, to ask what about the efficacies between these two different types of um, vaccines? So we have to be careful in talking about efficacy a bit because a lot of these vaccines are not looking at whether or a lot of these companies are not looking at whether these vaccines uh, inhibit virus uh, transmission, right? They're looking at whether these vaccines inhibit severe disease. Correct. Right. So on a lot of these people that are getting vaccinated, they can still get infected, but then they have very, very mild disease and it's not a problem. So is it the determination of how you define efficacy? Uh, I, I think so. When the There are differences in how different maybe vaccine companies and pharmaceutical companies define I efficacy? think when the data comes out, they're saying, OK, well, this prevent, prevents 90% or 90% prevention against severe COVID. Mm. OK, definition of severe COVID is what? Right. Each one of these companies may define it a little bit differently. So we, we won't really know till these data is peer reviewed and published. But so far, uh, Pfizer uh, claims 95% effective against COVID-19 beginning 28 days after the first dose. Uh, efficacy was consistent across age, gender, race, ethnicity, demographics, etc. And importantly, efficacy in the over 65 group was over 95%, which is fantastic because you want that with a disease that affects the elderly. Uh, Pfizer has already submitted uh, 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 to the FDA emergency use authorization uh, last week. Uh, so we'll see what happens in now, terms. With that ahead. EUA, yeah. how does that kind of, how is that different compared to a normal type of authorization? It's just going to speed up the process a bit more. Yeah. And if the EUA speeds up the process, I guess what corners are cut in this uh, in this situation? Safety corners are not cut. Okay. In terms of is it safe or not based on the data we're looking at, but whether we looked at uh, 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 somebody's uh, uh, status or response 
two to three months after the vaccine versus two to three years after the vaccine, which is normally what we would like to follow a cohort for that long with these vaccine studies. I mean, we will, but not oh, yeah, before of course. being administered. Of course. Administered. Uh, you know what's really being cut here? It isn't the safety as much as it is when we talk about red tape. I mean, think about it. You have to have somebody and multiple people review the data. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, they're probably put it on the bottom of their pile. They're going to get to it later. Well, we're this telling is them just this priority. is your job. This is your priority. If you don't get this done, you're yeah. out the door. Right. Okay. You're doing nothing you're, else you're, but this. Yeah. And, and so when you have somebody focused on it, it's put at the front line and it's fast tracked through everything. I think that's a good distinction to make and a good point to make for our listeners is the fact that, you know, I would hate to see anything be misconstrued there where you speed up the process. Oh, well, maybe these things are being rushed or put out, you know, Let's put up. out the put out the door when they're not I being they carefully being examined, rushed, right? But, but rushed not, in the sense of not they're still yeah. correct. Just long term. Yeah. Which right. I mean, we've had drugs like Celebrex that were pulled after long term monitoring as well. Yeah. So clearly we're going to have to, you know, monitor. But what's the what's what's the alternative? Right. In mm-hmm. an elderly patient, the alternative yeah. severe disease and death. What is the and again, I'm just thinking of these questions now. What is the average kind of turnaround time once an EUA is submitted? It, de- it, it depends. depends. It depends. There's no published information on that, at least Got that it. I could find. I really did dig for that. Uh-huh. Actually, I, I really dug for it for about a couple hours just for investing purposes, actually. <laughs> but because I was like, oh, if they get EUA, then the stock goes up, right? So like, oh, when when should I expect that? So right? a little bit of a selfish. So, uh, absolutely. Okay, yeah. In addition to looking for the podcast, I was looking for investing. But um, I'll give you an example Regeneron's antibody treatment, the one that was given to President Trump uh, in terms of his treatment, they submitted EUA uh, 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 application and it was approved four weeks later. It's pretty quick. Yeah. And I would guess that that's a pretty quick turnaround in a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. So Pfizer uh, is, says that they can, if approved, they can produce 50 million doses uh, between now and the end of the year. I think they're starting to produce those and up to 1.3 billion doses by the end of 2021, which given that this is a two dose vaccine, that means only 500 million people get vaccinated by the end of next year with Pfizer at the very least. But there are a ton of other companies, which is why I think governments are smart. Oh, look at that blue jay outside the window. Very beautiful. You're like a dog with a chipmunk. <laughs> yeah. I love blue jays. They're mean, they're mean birds, but they're such pretty birds. He was a well-renowned um, ornithologist at uh, Teal College. That is nonsense. <laughs> oh, I didn't believe a word of that. Uh, but, uh, back to, which is why I think governments are, are, are smart in contracting with multiple vaccine companies yes. to get more doses from different companies, right? Um, moving on to Moderna, Moderna so far have first interim analysis. We're still waiting on late stage interim uh, analysis of the data, but they are phase three. They've met statistical criteria, vaccine efficacy, 94.5%, which is fantastic. They plan to submit for an EUA themselves and, uh, they're, they're, they're doing well. I mean, they've, they've got the same platform as Pfizer, Uh, The drawbacks to both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines is that they are messenger RNA vaccines, right? Uh, The doses 
are expensive. I think we're looking at an average of 15 to 20 dollars per dose. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot. Uh, yeah, especially when you need to vaccinate billions of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also looking at extreme temperatures for transporting these vaccines and storing them. Look, the cost means nothing. I mean, to all those billions of people oh, that need the vaccine, oh, we've yeah. lost more oh, for we our have economy. We got to yeah, yeah, yeah. get this done Absolutely, I agree. and open the economy back um, up. I, I, 100%. Yeah, 100%. So uh, in terms of side effects of both of these vaccines, we're looking at minor uh, side effects. Um, Is that like fatigue, yeah. headache? Right. Myalgia, like mm-hmm. at the site of injection, you should expect uh, erythematous bumps. So like a little red bump, you know, mm-hmm. like a mosquito bite type thing. Uh, AstraZeneca is the third company to announce interim data. Uh, it's effectively, like I said, a weakened version of a chimpanzee uh, uh, adenovirus as the delivery vehicle to transfer coronavirus genes into human cells. Uh, different than the messenger RNA, advantages of AstraZeneca, faster to produce, cheaper to produce. They're expecting doses to be 3 to $4 per dose. Disadvantage of AstraZeneca so far is that their percentages are not as high as Moderna and Pfizer. So the depending on which way you look at the data, and uh, which is why I don't think they got excellent coverage in the last couple of days for that, you can either say the vaccine is 62% effective or 90% effective, depending on the dosing regimen. So apparently there was a mistake in the dosing regimen. Get this. This was haphazard as most science is right so they were supposed to give two doses mm-hmm. and the study that they were doing in brazil received two doses and one study that they were doing in the uk apparently the scientists made a mistake and the first dose they gave was miscalculated and it was half a dose so some group of people received half a dose, then a full dose later. So one and a half doses. Pretty much. And some people received two full doses. Intriguingly, the half a dose plus full dose 62%. was the 90%. Interesting. Yes. So booster effect. Was the 90% effective and the other one was the 62 And they say if you combine both studies, you're looking at a 70% efficacy. Now, I can tell you this. The FDA in a pandemic for an EUA... We'll take anything that is safe over 50%. I still think they get approved. I still think they, they still need to finish uh, their data, right? This is all first phase interim data, whatever. Uh, I think as long as the vaccine is safe, no side effects, provides protection in at least 50 to 60% of individuals, it will get approval. AstraZeneca can produce uh, a lot of doses uh, much, much quicker. I remember going into this vaccine trials and we talked about it on previous episodes where we where we said if we got 50 60 percent we're going to be happy yeah right the fda you know i i have not seen the data and i don't think we're going to get to see the data for a while but you know it depends on how they're analyzing it you can you can be tricky in your efficacy i mean Uh if you have let's say you have a thousand people in your study and a hundred of them get covid unless that's a pretty good, that's a 10% infection rate, yeah. or at least let's say symptom rate. Mm-hmm. And you're going to take those people and you tell me, oh, hey, 95 of these people weren't vaccinated and five were. Yeah, but what about the people that didn't show symptoms? Yeah. I mean, 
Well, were we, they infected or not? Were they? Yeah, we don't know. know if we don't know if they're testing just and for disease or virus. I don't want to play down the virus. vaccine. I don't want to play it down. No, no, I think no. That these are very good data, but you know the way it's stated is not one hundred percent correct. Yeah, I, I I think it's great news that we have good data. We need to see the data. As scientists, we yes. want to see the data. Yes, the FDA will do all of that. They are career scientists that you know. Uh, leave the politics out of it and just do their job. Right. So we hope, and I, I trust the FDA. There's no reason not to trust the FDA. I, yeah, I, I personally trust the FDA. I mean, once approved, I'll be getting the vaccine for sure. Of course. Yeah. Well, it's just a question of when we're allowed to get the vaccine, right? Well, my guess first is responders first will responders, get the vaccines, nurses, first, doctors, priority. Yeah. Then it's going to probably go to cops, firefighters, military. Mm -hmm. Don't kid yourself. Military is getting doses. Yeah. For sure. And oh, as they yeah. should. I mean, they live in close quarters, et cetera. Uh -huh. uh, and so then when can we realistically, the as rest part of us, the general population, get the vaccine well, mid, the, mid year next year? Sadly, there's also going to be a, 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 a stratum of who gets it. Yeah. I think Western Europe, North America will get vaccines pretty quickly. No, mm -hmm. oh, of course. Rest of the world, which is sad, I think poor countries will be on the bottom of that list. Yeah. Right. Because they, they can't they can't buy it. It has mm -hmm. to be donated to them. Now, the Gates Foundation is is trying to put together some mechanism where they can deliver doses to 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 poorer countries, which. Yeah. But uh, when do we get it? I think I don't expect an injection into my arm before April or May personally. Mm -hmm. And by that, by then, there'll be a lot more data out. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Oh, for and sure. We'll know. We'll know whether these are effective. Right. And, and, and then there's like at least, what, 10, 15 other phase three trials going. Johnson Johnson oh, has yeah. one. Novavax has one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We haven't talked about the Chinese and the Russian. Uh, no vaccines. need. Exactly. No need. Uh, which was funny, though, you know, because <laughs> when Moderna said theirs was like 90 percent effective. Right. And then Pfizer came out and said, what, 94 percent or 94 percent effective, 95 percent effective. And Moderna was like, oh, sorry. Then a week later, the Russians came out like, oh, yeah, yeah. Ours is over 90 percent, too. It's 92 percent effective, even though they made an announcement about it, like what, a month ago without efficacy numbers. <laughs> but once the West started having over 90, suddenly all of a sudden their vaccine was effective. All right. So um, one interesting thing on coronavirus as well, and I was very skeptical about this article a lot. Uh, a new article came out in Lancet uh, Psychiatry Journal uh, saying that nearly one in five persons diagnosed with COVID is also diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder like anxiety, depression, and insomnia within three months of uh, diagnosis and recovery. And um, that may be, I'm calling bullshit on that personally. Why? I mean, you're looking at anxiety, depression, and insomnia. Would you not be anxious and lose some sleep over the fact that you're, you have COVID? And so you're talking about a causal effect here. You're yeah, thinking about... I mean, were, were these symptoms evident beforehand or are these symptoms just a side effect of being sick? And because we're With living in a pandemic that era, disease, right? Yeah, Rather yeah. than the virus itself causing it. Right. I think it's just maybe the status of living with the infection causing you to lose some sleep and be a little bit paranoid. What, what is the new diagnosis of anxiety, depression or insomnia in people who didn't have COVID-19 right. when mm -hmm. it gets close up. to 20%. Yeah. yeah, it's also up. These people are probably being targeted more for mm -hmm. uh, for studies like this, or, or at least, you know, 
mental health studies because they had COVID-19. More so than the general population. But on the flip side, we don't know. We don't know specifically, you know, how COVID could be affecting, you know, um, the brain or mental status or things like that. We don't know that yet. Sure. But looking at this and looking at that high number, what, 18.1 percent? I don't think that's um, high. I've... I, I'm telling you, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's high. I think the general non-infected with, population probably has 18 percent who yeah, has or higher. I'm saying yeah, yeah. that. Okay, but I agree I with Doctor A too that that uh, it, it just could be because you had COVID 19, you're probably very depressed. Right. Well, that's a stat that I would like the to insomnia. see is in the general population. What is the you know incidence rate of anxiety, depression, or insomnia? Right. Well, I mean, I, I can give you just a personal anecdotal evidence. Uh, I don't think my sister would mind me sharing this story. But uh, her and her husband got pre-infected last week, right? Mm-hmm. And then all three of her kids pretty much have it. And my sister uh, hasn't slept in a week, worried about the children, right? So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, I just mean, is getting- it clinical anxiety? Is it clinical depression where you need treatment? Right. Or is it because she's concerned? I mean, I would be anxious right. as well. Right. My gosh. Wow. Okay. Um, conservative estimates show that 10 to 30% of adults live with chronic insomnia. This so, is non-infected, like just the general just population. conservative general estimates. Yeah. Now yeah. other studies show closer to 50 to 60%. So multiple studies are showing a wide, wide range of the incidence of insomnia. Didn't realize that was that much. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. So this study to me is a bit of a BS. Maybe they should take tryptophan. Oh, that's a good well, segue. Go. Oh my gosh! How that's did that an just happen? Excellent segue into our Thanksgiving discussion. So let's <laughs> let's move on from Corona and talk about Thanksgiving so myths. Thanksgiving science myths. There are a few out there, and I, I think you know, given given the season, it's it was a good opportunity. So we uh, we took that bait. One of the biggest myths out there, I believe, and it's been debunked, but is uh, many times. Oh, debunked. it's still many, just <laughs> many times. You but, still hear it said. But you Even hear students say this. Yeah, you know, so why are you so sleepy after eating your Thanksgiving dinner? And in the past, research suggested it was the amount of tryptophan, which is an amino acid that's found in the turkey. Um, and that's because very high doses of tryptophan are used uh, as a sleep aid. So I guess we eat more turkey if you've got insomnia. If only it were so, that simple. Yeah, if only it were that simple. See, so the turkey does contain tryptophan. We know that. But so does other foods like cheeses and chicken. chicken yeah. Right? To, to a higher degree, a higher concentration. Um, and, but but the, all these foods, they don't have even close to the concentration people are taking as a sleep aid. Mm-hmm. So what is it? Right? So, so does tryptophan induce drowsiness? No. No. No, and you have to think about the other factors that are occurring at the same time when you're eating, you know, and uh, enjoying your Thanksgiving holiday. But um, tryptophan is an essential alpha amino acid, right? Which means you have to obtain this from the diet. Your body is unable to make this specific amino acid. And it's going to be found in different things like cheese, meat, turkey, other types of poultry. And tryptophan is used to make serotonin. And as we know, serotonin is a very important chemical in the brain that's going to help to create a sense of well-being and overall relaxation. And um, serotonin is also what's going to be used to make melatonin. And melatonin is that very, very important uh, chemical produced by the pineal gland that's going to help uh, put you to sleep, right? Involved with the sleep-wake cycle, different things like that. 
Now, the thing that immediately I, debunks... I feel a spike of melatonin coming right now. Oh, I bet. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, turkey and turkey meat contains no more significant amounts of tryptophan than other types of poultry. It actually has been documented to have a bit less. So, this means, you know, if we're sleepy as a direct result of eating tryptophan that's found in turkey, we should also feel just as sleepy, if not more, from other foods that are rich in tryptophan. Again, things like other meats, cheeses, other types of poultry. It's probably all the carbs you eat at Thanksgiving and all that Definitely sweet is. potato. Yeah. My, my food. Do they make ambrosia salad up here? It's very famous down south. Uh, like with, uh, that's not something we have. We yeah, have like a fruit salad with like marshmallows. So I, I don't know. I, a lot of people haven't heard of this. We uh, are German. So mashed potatoes. With noodles over top. Ooh. You want to talk about carbs. So that sounds a lot okay. better than so just regular mashed potatoes. They're egg noodles. Egg, okay, I was going to say what kind egg of noodles. Egg noodles yeah. okay. in, uh, in chicken broth. Okay. Typically. Mm, interesting. And instead of gravy, you, you put these over top. So you want to talk about a carb overload. There you are. What do we feel about mashed potatoes in general? Because by themselves, I don't like them. No, but I got fancy with them. I'm making like you, garlic you, mashed potatoes. Yeah, you, you got to put like gravy on them too. Yeah. And mashed potatoes without gravy is, is an atrocity. Unless they're <laughs> fancy. My brother made some bacon horseradish mashed potatoes. Oh, wow. So I would oh, he's that, fancy. He's good. Yeah. You know, my family is uh, ethnically Lebanese, so every Thanksgiving dinner includes side dishes that are like sure. hummus, baba ganoush. <laughs> oh, I love baba ganoush. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's it's still an American uh, feast, but includes some interesting side dishes. I, I would, that sounds good. I would, I, I would take some of that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, besides it's kind of being debunked because of just the amount of tryptophan that's found in Turkey, um, tryptophan, as well as other amino acids that are absorbed into the bloodstream during the digestion process, are basically going to compete. Kind of wait. Think about waiting in a line when we could actually go to the movies. Think about waiting in line for a favorite movie. If any of you, when you were younger, waiting in line to see a favorite movie at midnight, or is that just me because I'm a geek? All you, buddy. That's just me. Okay. <laughs> I didn't say anything. But think about tryptophan and other amino acids waiting in line. Um, tryptophan is especially going to be waiting in line to make its way through the blood-brain barrier, to make its way into the brain, um, because tryptophan is very, very big and is kind of bulky in terms of amino acids com uh, compared to other amino acids. That means very little tryptophan ultimately makes its way across the blood-brain barrier. And uh, the blood-brain barrier is... It's a barrier. <laughs> For our non-science <laughs> listeners, your brain usually is protected with a blood-brain barrier that is, is sort of a, I think of it as a wall, tight, tight junction wall that does not allow for Only large very small molecules, things. large drugs, and most importantly, immune cells to enter the brain. Which would be very bad. Which would, it would cause a lot of tissue. inflammation and issues like that, at least with immune cells. Okay. There are other sites in the body that are immune privileged in addition to the brain, eyes and testes. Moving on from immunology. <laughs> this uh, uh, immunology talk received so, uh, no enthusiasm from my fellow podcasters. <laughs> I, I was listening. I didn't say anything. So, so why so are we why so groggy at Thanksgiving? Yeah, it's, it's the overeating. Come on, we, we, we eat so much. And look, at, average, look at the pie. Average meal, right? do you know? Uh, so the average caloric intake for a Thanksgiving meal is estimated at around 3000 calories. Ooh. 
which is over 500 to 1,000 suggested caloric intake for a day. Right. Uh, estimates with drinks and dessert, closer to 4,500 calories. Oh, I bet. That's I a bet. lot. And that's before you have the leftovers. You know, most people go burn it over at uh, Black Friday shopping, but not anymore. Not anymore. It's all online. That's right. Is it all online? No, but it should be. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Just wear your mask when you're know, out there uh, in line. Yes. I didn't know you, anywhere around here that was going to be having in person. I assume the mall's going to be open for Black Friday, right? Well, you know, I, I told you the other day I drove yeah. by I drove by the mall because I needed to pick up like a fishing uh, hook from uh, 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 Dick's Sporting Goods and parking lot at the mall was packed man people are out hey, in full force a, a good shopping deal will never stop people no of course but not covid be damned that's right but amazon will be making a lot of money this week oh, so I bet. white let's take a poll white meat or dark meat white i like white meat i like yeah. white white meat yeah, sure, my, sure. my grandmother enjoyed dark meat she was i think my dad likes dark meat if i'm not i mean mistaken. i will have some but White. So what is the difference physiologically and anatomically, Fauna? So dark meat is composed of slow twitch muscle fibers. And the reason why you have that kind of darker color is due to the presence of a very important molecule known as myoglobin. So myoglobin, think about hemoglobin, but instead of carrying oxygen in your bloodstream, myoglobin, hence the prefix myo, you're going to be holding oxygen for certain types of muscle fibers, uh, depending on what you're using them for. And dark meat, which again, composed of slow twitch muscle fibers, they generally contract at a slower rate. So a little bit of a slower rate of ATPase activity between those muscle fibers. They're very slow to fatigue and they're really adapted for extended exertion and long term actions. Um, think about so do those kick in, say, if you're running a marathon, uh, you would have much more highly developed um, and a greater proportion of slow twitch muscle fibers um, if you are training for a marathon, you know, okay. in your leg muscles, okay. uh, calf muscles, etc. Are there workouts at the gym one can do to engage more slow twitch? Oh, for sure. You can train these. Now, something that we'll be talking about is a recent development in kind of the genetic basis for predisposing an individual for having more slow twitch versus fast twitch fibers. But you can target these. You can train your body to, you know, have more uh, slow twitch versus fast twitch fibers in a given muscle group, for sure. Is there ethnic uh, differences between... Uh populations say does like one ethnic group have more slow twitch than fast twitch i would hazard to say that because there is a genetic basis for this predisposition i would say yes i can't give you exact right. I'm, I'm just trying to stats. think of like say why north africans or africans in general are good at marathon running it could be possible i would say um especially because of these genetic uh, breakthroughs that have occurred yeah and they practice and well. training, vast amount <laughs> training. of training for sure. Yeah. So that's dark meat. White meat is going to be um, mainly composed of fast twitch uh, muscle fibers. And these are going to be adapted for very short but intense energy bursts. Think of something like weightlifting or extreme sprinting. Um, they're going to mainly contract via anaerobic uh, means. 
which means they're not going to use oxygen as much. You're not going to have as much of that myoglobin that's found in the white meat fast twitch muscle fibers. And once again, myoglobin, whenever it's heated and you cook the meat, myoglobin will, the iron at the center of it will release an electron and you're going to get that overall darker color as part of the uh, dark slow twitch muscle fibers. Now, white meat doesn't have the myoglobin, primarily anaerobic, which is why you get so much uh, power in those specific muscle fibers, but you're not going to be able to exert those for very long. So why isn't it as juicy? That's what I want to know. Why isn't it as juicy when you eat it? Is, 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 is there a dark meat? White meat. White meat? Right. So dark meat has more flavor and is juicier, a little bit juicier usually, right? White meat. I guess depends on how you cook it. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, I would maybe, think so, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Thankfully, my mother does not listen. <laughs> All right. So. Um, and basically, in terms of the genetic mechanism, um, a scientist at the University of Sheffield by the name of Philip um, Ingham uh, studied. Sheffield. Uh, Study. I imagine him with a monocle. Definitely. (laughs) I could see that. Uh, He studied zebrafish muscle cells and identified a gene known as, is this Ubo or U-boot? U-boot. And he determined that this gene, U-boot, has a key role in specifying what specific muscle type develops, whether you would be more predisposed to having dark, slow-twitch muscle fibers or white, fast-twitch muscle fibers. And it's also been shown that this U-boot gene regulates a transcription factor known as BLIMP1. And this is in your field, guys, when it comes to BLIMP1, also has a role in specifying and determining uh, white blood cell types, correct? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, what will be interesting. I bet you a CRISPR Cas mm. is uh, being developed to increase certain uh, fiber, slow twitch or fast twitch. In certain muscle or, groups yeah, compared I, to I, the other. Specify bet, the genetic manipulation of I that. I bet you yeah. that's coming. Yeah. That's the next doping scandal. Well, which again begs the Probably. question and the debate. <laughs> Uh, now that we have this means and we've identified the gene here, we can upregulate this gene or change this gene to determine different muscle types. Um, how much of this is actually ethical and giving unfair advantages? Are we heading to a future where every single person, if they wanted to, can would have... <laughs> would, yeah, could you imagine everybody... Uh, the results of a marathon, everybody finishes in an hour and a half and it's down to millisecond uh, differences yeah. for first, second, third place. So, uh, Foner, d- does did your family ever brine turkeys? Uh, uh, yeah, my mother did, if I'm not mistaken. She didn't really allow me into the kitchen too much because I generally got into the got in the way or you know messed things up. So usually it was like work. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's why I keep them out of my office. That's right. That's fine. <laughs> we need to keep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she would she would brine turkey for sure. How about how about your family colored? I'm Brian? trying to think. Uh, you know, we had big Thanksgivings. I don't ever remember cooking anything. Um, I, I think my dad brined one one year. Yeah. I'm pretty as, sure. As far as I know, we're non-briners. So, but yeah. the myth is that if you brine a turkey, it's juicier. Where are we on that myth? Busted I, or not? I, I think so. Yeah. So not true. No, no. I, I think it's juicier. It is juicier if you brine it. I think so. Okay, and the reason is at least more tender. Okay, easier, you know, mm-hmm. more tender. 
So people thought that if you brine it in, you know, a salty solution, then uh, what happens is that what uh, because of osmosis, the turkey fills up with water or whatever. Right. right. Turns out that's not true. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not true. So what's what what, what happens? Uh, so if if it was osmosis, then if you put the turkey in that salt solution, uh, it then, would cause water to, to leave yeah, and it would dry that turkey yes. out so yeah. fast or whatever. But so that doesn't definitely happen, right? not osmosis. No, that's not clearly not what happens because people wouldn't do it then. Right. So what does happen then? Uh, so why is the, the turkey in general more moist? Well, it's probably just diffusion over a, a long time period, not osmosis. So salt comes into the cells of the turkey, bringing more water in it. So you're going to have a saltier turkey. Mm-hmm. So watch out for that sodium. We even talk yeah, about you gotta that. you got to be careful. Right? But it, it is going to bring some water in and kind of open up the, the proteins and the muscle fibers and make it tender. So the uh, salty solution that then moves into the cells helps denature proteins. That's the thought. Perfect. That's a. I, I, I love that. Interesting. Yeah, I love that Science. we can figure these things out. Science of Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah. So now, now it's time to play Turkey True and False. Ooh. So I found a few science-related things, maybe not medical, right? But did b- before we got there, did you know that the turkey was Benjamin Franklin's favorite bird? That's what I heard. And if he had his way, the United States emblem would not be uh, an eagle. It would be a turkey, (laughs) which I find funny. Yeah, but that's a little odd. (laughs) I'd rather have the eagle, but that's just So do I. I I think that's more kick-ass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You ever seen a a bald eagle fishing? Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. It's awesome. So I was on the Allegheny River one year, and I mean, they've been, they came back a while ago, but you'll just see them. Just all of a sudden, right down into the river, come out with a yeah, fish. They're amazing, amazing, amazing birds. What does a turkey do? Gobble, gobble. Uh, that's right. right. <laughs> all right. So true or false? Wild turkeys cannot fly. Uh, false. false. That is false. Domestic turkeys typically don't fly because they get their wings clipped because people don't want them flying away. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Interesting. But uh, wild turkeys can fly. Uh, f- up to 55 miles per hour. Wow. Yeah, cool. In short bursts. Wow. They don't, they don't really fly high because they're ground birds. Sure, sure, sure. All right. Good. That's good. We're, we're uh, one for one. One for one. Okay. True or false? Turkeys sleep in trees. I'll say true. I'll say true to that, too. It is. It is true. You guys read what I read, didn't you? So turkeys like to sleep in trees to stay away from predators. Number three, it is safe to cook stuffing inside of the turkey. Just because you had this in here, I'm going to go false. As a microbiologist, I'm going to say it does not get hot enough. And that is the truth. So false is correct. Mm. Uh, Because the cavity inside might not get to a, a normalized temperature, there are pockets in there that might contribute to uh, a lesser temperature and allow those bacteria to survive like salmonella. Is there a specific time to maybe avoid that? And like in terms of cooking, can you cook the turkey a little bit longer? Sure, but what will happen is you'll overcook you risk, the turkey. Yeah. And so we just suggest cooking the stuffing on the side. Exactly. So I wonder dressing, how, stuffing, there's a big debate there. But. So I wonder how many kind of what salmonella cases maybe get diagnosed because Ooh, of inadequate stuffing. Also, your turkey will cook faster without the stuffing inside. That's true. That's true. Okay. So far, we're, we're doing good. Number four, turkeys are the only bird that has teeth. Oh, 
I don't know this one. True. Uh, I'm going to say the only thing I'm going to say false because I'm thinking of bigger birds like emus and cassowaries. I'm thinking those have teeth. Okay, no birds have teeth. Damn you, Keller. I know. I got you. <laughs> so it is false. Um, so how do they... Then so they're like descendants of dinosaurs, right? Did, did dinosaurs have teeth? Some, they must have, right? Some did. I'm looking at you thinking T-Rex, okay? You ever seen Jurassic Park? <laughs> oh, yeah. I would say they got teeth. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, no, birds have beaks. Uh, they have a gizzard. So that you'll, you'll often see birds like turkeys and pheasants eating chickens, right? Eating rocks. And those rocks will get polished in the gizzard and it breaks apart the food like it, like teeth would. Sure, sure. When they eat it before it gets digested. Okay. Uh, number five, we kind of already did this. Turkeys are related to T-Rex. Fact. That is a fact. Yep. The wishbone is found in T-Rex and in... I bet you that, I bet uh, you there's no... Br- Doing the what the wishbone challenge? It's hard enough. It's hard enough with <laughs> yeah, the jerky yeah. in it. <laughs> That's going to be a challenge with the T Rex. Yeah, researchers <laughs> found that the wishbone dates back more than 150 million years to dinosaurs wow. like T Rex and Velociraptors. Oh, that's cool. I think that's my kid's favorite dinosaur. That's my Velocir- favorite. Oh. Okay, number six. What is the red flesh hanging over the male turkey's beak called? Is it a an inconvenience? An inconvenience. <laughs> is it a a red beard? Is it B, a nasal membrane, or is it C, a snood? Snood. I'm going to go with nasal membrane. It's a snood. Oh. It's a snood. And any, what's the use of, what's the purpose of yeah, this? Any, any yeah, any function? What would you think? Courtship. Yes. So it's mainly, uh, it'll get inflamed, uh, wow. red, bright red, and uh Fill up with blood, so engorged uh-huh. when so it's si- and it ex- excited or beating. Wow. So you're saying an erection? It is. It's a snoot erection. <laughs> that was, snoot that's one of the links I sent you. So <laughs> I didn't wow. see that one. Yeah. <laughs> Two more. Uh, number seven. A turkey can explode in a deep fryer. Sure. False. I would say this has, if it had, has happened even once. If it has. What explode? You mean like the turkey pieces? Just like there, there's no longer a formed turkey. It's all like pieces of meat. Everywhere. Or the actual deep fryer explodes as well. Or I mean, boom, boom, boom. <sighs> I would say yes. I I think because like if it's still frozen or water comes in contact with the with you the got it. With, with the oil, yes, yes. But so the frozen tur- turkeys. But the turkey itself. Exploding into pieces, does that happen or just a giant ball of fire? Giant ball of fire, which yeah. will also make the turkey blow into right. pieces. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, uh, it, it, you got it right. It's, it's not the turkey, it's the frozen, it's the mm. water. Right. So, as that, you think, know, think of a grease fire, right? Never toss exactly. water on a grease fire, right? Yeah. So, when the ice from the frozen turkey meets the oil, it changes to steam and that expands over 1700 times of the size. So, boom. All right, last one. Oh, boom, you're in trouble. How many turkeys will be eaten for Thanksgiving? Is it 4.6 million, 46 million, or 460 million? 46 million. Well, let me think, let me think. Are we talking just American Thanksgiving? I would believe so. Okay. 330 million people, Mm -hmm. average household size, three to four. Brings us down to maybe a hundred million households, a little bit less than that. Uh, but there are a lot of single households. 460 million just sounds so... A lot. That's like more than one turkey over. per person. 
I would say 46 million. But then what do the other people eat? No, I think 460. Yeah. I'm going with 460. I'll say 46. 46 million. Ah, wow. so what's there's a lot of people that don't eat. Sure. Or they'll have tofurkey. Yeah. yeah. How's that? So, uh, exactly. <laughs> that's unfortunate. Get that out of here. <laughs> so. That is unfortunate. All right. Well, thank you for our turkey chew and false. I hope everybody's learned something. Well, you stumped us on a few. I did my best. It's hard to stump a scientist. And uh, look at the reasoning skills over here on Fawner. Yeah, he's uh Yeah, it might be good at Jeopardy. Or no, that's no, not you a have good to do that skill quick. for yeah, yeah. That's right. I, he'd probably yeah, break down know. hitting that button. I wouldn't like that. The sound would be <laughs> got the button. The sound twice, would get to me. Probably. So good news is for our guest the microbe. Oh, guess the microbe, yes. We had over a hundred and forty responses or guesses to our last guess the microbe. Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. Uh, shout out to the MMS class. Uh, pretty much all of them uh, wrote in. It's great. Yeah, they did. So you want to give us a recap on that and then the answer and then the winner? Sure. And then we do have a new one if we want to. So last episode's riddle was uh, the, the mid-1990s. A 24-year-old female who was staying with friends in Iowa developed some eye irritation uh, she ignored the discomfort, but it got so bad uh, with pain and photophobia that uh, she couldn't even look at bright lights. So she went to an urgent care facility. They said she had conjunctivitis, gave her a corticosteroid uh, eye drop, and it, it helped a little bit. But then a few days later, it got even worse to where she couldn't even open her eyes. And so her friends took her to see their optometrist and she was diagnosed with pain as being out of proportion with her exam findings. It was not a bacterial infection. She actually was infected with something called acanthamoeba. Acanthamoeba is an amoeba that lives in fresh water, like ponds and lakes and maybe slow moving rivers. It lives at the, in, in the silt at the bottom of the river. It can contaminate drinking water supplies occasionally because it has a cyst. A cyst is kind of like a bacterial spore. It'll protect that that amoeba until it gets into a new host. It enjoys the eye, and it's usually associated with people and contact lenses. And several species of this amoeba can cause the disease amoebic keratitis, uh, and it can lead to potential blindness. Uh, don't swim with your contact lenses in people, mm. right? That's, I mean, there's other pathogens too, but that's really what is either contact with fresh water or improper storage of contact lenses is another way to get acanthamoeba. Uh, there have been several outbreaks associated with this parasite being in contaminated contact lens solution. That's kind of scary. One, that, yeah, it is scary. It's scary. One major sign of acanthamoeba keratitis is pain out of proportion with exam findings. Um, corticosteroids worsen the symptoms. That's what we saw in this patient here. Um, and uh, the diagnosis is usually made microscopically by visualizing the double-walled cyst form of the amoeba. Fantastic. And we've had a lot of guesses. And we had a random draw. And we have a winner, don't we? Yeah, we do. Uh, and the winner is Alexander Callow. So, Alexander, thank you so much for participating. Um, bonus points are probably more important, but <laughs> you do win a prize. So please contact Dr. A at The Biobusters 
at gmail.com to collect your gift, your prize, more than a gift. Uh, And Alexander, if you are in Erie, uh, makes things a lot easier. If you are not in Erie, when you do contact me, please uh, give me your uh, address so I can put your gift in the mail. Very good. Very good. All right. Do we have a new riddle? Okay, we do. We have a new riddle uh, for Thanksgiving. And once again, uh, you know, if if you know the answer, please don't hesitate to email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. In 1884, Robert Koch and Fr- uh, Friedrich Loeffler composed what is now known as Koch's Postulates. Uh, Koch actually refined these in 1890, so he's given credit over Loeffler. Um, these are a series of steps that uh, that were then used to determine if a bacteria specifically caused a certain infection. And simply stated, there's four steps. The first step is to identify the pathogen in uh, sick people, but it should not be present in healthy people. The second step is that you must be able to culture the microorganism from the diseased person. The original, at least the original Koch's postulates. The third step was that you could take that that cultured bacteria and inject it into a healthy person and they would get the same disease as the original person. And lastly, you must be able to re-isolate that same pathogen from the sick person who was inoculated. And so this proved that that specific bacteria caused that specific disease. Right. Definitive causative agent. Right. We know that uh, those are hard to prove with things like viruses. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Even parasites. And the fact that... Uh, or even asymptomatics. I was going to say, different infections present differently in different people. Right. Modern technologies such as PCR and genome sequencing have vastly replaced the culture requirement, uh, which is important to fulfill Koch's postulates in things like viruses and, and, and other pathogens we don't culture. So this episode's question is, which two bacteria did Koch initially used to support these postulates. If you think you know the answer, write it on the back of a $20 bill and uh, send it to <laughs> C. Keller at <laughs> Lecom. All right. So if you know the answer or if you have a topic suggestion or if you want to tell us anything, please email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. Anything else, guys, before we wrap up? No, I think that's it. That was uh, that did not take as long as trying to get the microphones working. That's right. No. Everybody have a very safe and fruitful Thanksgiving. Relaxing. Yeah. Be safe. Happy. And travel and be thankful. Yeah. Be thankful for what we do have, mm-hmm. especially this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can uh, find us on iTunes. Uh, just search for the Biobusters. Uh, you can use any podcast catcher to download our episodes. You can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. And uh, I'm Delbert Abibdala. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert. You can find Christopher Fawner at Fawner916. And Dr. Keller remains Twitterless. This is going to remain Twitterless. And thank you all for listening. And thanks to Vanamani for the music. Thank you. Thank you.